The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, get that Cuban cigar away from Miguel Castro and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. This is ex-president Bill Clinton announcing show number 217 with Paul Randall. I am not here. .NET Rocks is produced by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering on-site classes in Microsoft.net technologies online at www.franklins.net. And now, the man who found himself without an announcer this week, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's time for .NET Rocks. Are you ready, Richard Campbell? I am very ready. I was born ready. Good. Uh, well, it's been a, a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, my hometown, out there on the edge of the prairie. <laughs> Isn't that in Minnesota? Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm having a good week, though. Uh, studio, this is a, we have some big announcements here. First of all, uh, studio's being totally renovated, and uh, you can see some pictures at photos.pwop.com of the shell that once was both the studio and the training room. That's right. The training room no longer exists at franklins.net. What we're doing, Richard, is we're moving our classes, our public classes, to Atlanta. Right. And uh, most of our trainers are from down there anyway, so Mark Dunn's got a little establishment down there, so we're just moving them down there. And uh, the training room, we do have a couple classes here left in the queue, and those are going to be held at a local hotel. No problem. So, uh, but the, basically, we want more studio space because we're doing more podcasting than than uh, public training. We're doing a lot of on-site training, though, and uh, that's basically what's going on in my room. You know, it's it's amazing. It it had a ceiling, it had a floor. There was a wall between them. It all came out. You know, you want to hear a funny story? Hit me. So, one of the guys that used to work on the floor up here had this old crappy Brady Bunch era soda machine, right? <laughs> okay. You know, the industrial brown tanks with the snowflake backlit thing that says cold drinks on it and where the sodas actually appear in these square bubbles and you push them in and they go chunk and then boom, they fall down. Remember those kind? Right. Yeah. Vintage. Vintage soda machine. And it never worked. So he got it up here. You know, turned it in, plugged it on, filled it with soda, and then it went, <laughs> and just never worked. Then he moved out of the building and left it with us, right? Abandoned. Yeah. So, so then it's like he sold it to some guy, and the guy never contacted him for three months. So we were like, hmm, all right, it's coming out. 
So the guy who's doing construction with me, Jed, he uh, he takes a sawzall to it. Oh, no. Guts it. Cuts it in half. Takes out all the guts. And we toss it off the fire escape at 3 a.m. into the parking lot. Crash! <laughs> There's nobody around, right? Nobody complain. Nobody cares. You make noise in New London at 3 in the morning. There's nobody there. Fifth floor, right? 62 feet down. <sighs> Boom. I only wish we could have got it on video. Amazing. How many times do you get to saw a soda machine in half and chuck it off a fifth-story window? <laughs> I thinking you were the only one. Let's uh, get to some email. We had some very interesting stuff this week. You bet. Uh, me first or you? You first. All right. Dear Carl and Richard, I saw a blog post on the top 10 most influential people in the Microsoft.net world, which we shrinksterized at shrinkster.ml5, and was over the moon to see you guys in the list. When it comes to building community around the .NET platform, you guys stand head and shoulders above the crowd. You know, Richard, I get the feeling that people are getting sick of us reading praise emails. <laughs> That's why we did the flames, people. Now, right. hey, look, listeners, if this happened to you, like all of a sudden you found yourself the host of a really, really popular talk show, wouldn't you? I mean, what do you do? They just keep coming in. <laughs> These emails. Maybe we should just edit it out. We'll leave that part out and read the other parts. No, no, it's all right. Okay. All right, so here comes the standard yada, yada, yada section. I've been a long-term listener to .NET Rocks, even the heady days before Mondays, the Mondays split off, and just love your work. I love the quality and the range of guests, the interview style, and the fantastic sound production quality of the show, which uh, shouldn't be overlooked as it makes your show a pleasure to listen to. I've always done my very best to get as many of my developer friends to listen to the show as I can. I think it's that good. So in short, you guys rock. Your show rocks. Your guests rock. And what you do for the community rocks. Give me some swag. <laughs> he didn't really say He didn't say that. But it's <laughs> pretty much, you know, okay. Uh, then he goes on to say, here's a quick DNR swag story for you, not that I'm hinting or anything. Now he said it. Yeah, now he said it. He said it with more class than I... There you go. Yeah. Many moons ago, a friend of mine who I used to chat with about .NET Rocks episodes before he moved to the United States to work at Microsoft sent an email to you guys and got a .NET Rocks cup as swag. Well, he just loved that cup and still does as far as I know. Anyway, I remember once he was making a cup of tea for a girl he fancied when uh, he pulled out his DNR cup from the cupboard up high where he kept it wrapped in silk. <laughs> oh, here it comes. And offered it to her saying, if you want, you can use my .NET Rocks mug. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't get the girl. <laughs> yes! Carl and Richard doing their best to keep geeks from procreating. But, uh, but I digress. Just wanted to say a big thank you to you guys for the show and let you know I also consider you to be in my top 10 most influential people in the .NET world. Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Kim Philpotts from Australia. Australians, they're crazy. They are crazy down there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got a shorter one. Okay. Hi, guys. For the last nine or ten months, I've livened up my daily commute by bus and train with .NET Rocks, listening to two or three shows a week. Now, though, I have a serious problem. I've caught up with real time, and now I only have one stellar .NET Rock show to enjoy each week. 
Hmm. Worse, I'm up to date with Hansel Minutes as well. Uh Uh-oh. You guys are great. I've sampled a wide variety of podcasts over the last year, and I've found few worth a return visit. Not only is your content first rate, but the recording itself is crystal clear, a significant factor when trying to listen while standing on a noisy, overcrowded 50-year-old commuter train making the run into Wellington. Yeah, it really does matter. And I've been on that train, and it <laughs> sucks. Yeah. <laughs> on a recent show, you mentioned the possibility of interviewing Oren Eni, a.k.a. Allende, yeah. and talking about and hibernate. Yes. Hell yeah! Absolutely. First, do an Enhibernate show. Next, get Allende to join you and a few others, say Ted Neward, Paul Wilson, and Scott Ambler, for the ultimate ORM.net smackdown. What a great idea. Hey, while you're at it, do a show on mocking for TDD. Allende is the author of Rhino Mocks, so make sure he's on board. Well, it just so happens. Just uh, wait. There's more. No. Just okay. in case he wasn't leading us beautifully down the garden path. Okay, I'll, I'll bite my tongue. Keep up the good work. Two shows a week would be good. Oh. Bevan, Wellington, New Zealand. Richard, I think we ought to make this guy's day. <laughs> Let's grant some wishes, shall Let's we? Let's grant all of those wishes, shall we? <laughs> all right. So, we are interviewing, actually have interviewed Oren Andy on Enhibernate and Rhinomox. We are trying to put together the ultimate ORM.net SmackDown because I really want to see Oren hang Ted Neward. I think it'll be hilarious. <laughs> and Dev finally, teach, right at DevTeach, we're going to try this. Yeah, I think we're trying to make it happen at DevTeach. And finally, this is the week that we start doing two shows a week. Two for the price of one. There you go. <laughs> That's right. So what we what we mean by that is we're going to have two different shows for available for download every week so essentially you'll never well you you won't never but you, you there's less of a chance that you're going to run out of content there you go we we're trying to raise the amount of content available and as the editorial planner it makes my life great to know that every week i have two shows to work with so that i can do something really technical every week and then have a little more fun with the other show that week right go a little further off the deep end, try some other things. So it's opened up the windows to us. And who do we have to thank for this wonderful thing? Well, it's Telerik, of course. Telerik, our our number one sponsor. And uh, just in terms of the financial uh, support that they've given, they're our number one sponsor. And they've decided to go ahead and sponsor every show. Every awesome. .NET Rocks, every Hansel Minutes, every DNR TV. They're stepping up, and we're really, really proud to know them and to uh, to have the kind of feedback that we get from our our listeners when they're, they're just delighted with their service, their their you know their tech support, their products. It's just really feels good to to help a company like that grow and blossom. And they really have grown with us, haven't they? they yeah, were, they have. A couple of years ago, when you first started working with them, they were just getting started too, and. Here we are side by side, both growing and thriving. Yeah, it's really a wonderful thing. And we can't wait to go back to Bulgaria. Uh, now, let's get to a couple other things real quick. If you're looking for a job and you're a .NET guy, we have two opportunities for you. One is, of course, Greg Brill's Infusion uh, New York City tour. Which Mr. You, Brill. Yeah, which you can read about at shrinkster.com slash kh6. A surprising number of listeners have actually moved to New York City and uh, are filling in there. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity, especially for uh, you know single guys. 
Great. Yeah. Great for you to go to the city, live rent-free for a year. That's right. He's going to take care of your rent and uh, see the city, get a nice salary, and uh, work with some really great people. And I've been down there. I've seen their operation. It's top-notch. Also, uh, there's a gig in Washington, D.C. for ASP.NET gurus, and this isn't just one. They're looking for a bunch of ASP.NET gurus in the D.C. area. Cool. So if you're located near or willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C., here's the deal. Your responsibilities are helping developers understand the intricacies of ASP.NET, the CLR, and SQL Server, uh, building an ASP.NET-powered site or multiple sites for their customers and partners, and your requirements are a zen. I love this a zen-like understanding of ASP.NET 2.0. <laughs> you understand the page life cycle, data binding, IIS, IHTTP handler, ASP.NET AJAX, pre-compilation, and anything else that Scott Guthrie talks about. Right. Yeah. So it's too bad Fritz Onion is already uh, taken, but he's got a job. He he would have a job in DC. Uh, a deep foundational knowledge of the stuff that makes the web tick, like HTTP, HTML, CSS, XML, and the relational data model. A thorough understanding of the non-ASP.NET elements of the Microsoft stack, such as SQL Server, the .NET framework, and WPFE, WCF, WF, etc. And you got to be a developer, not just a programmer. you got to be a developer. Nice. That means design architecture as well. Excellent interpersonal skills and a sense of humor. Well, if they're listening to this show, you know, they have no sense of humor. So maybe this is not a good idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> a sol- I'm just kidding. A solid command of written and spoken English. Outstanding writing skills are a plus. Here are the perks. You ready for the perks? Hit me. You work. Hey, this could be like a regular thing, you know. We could. I don't want to become like a recruiter or something like that, but... But it's it's really cool that uh, people are looking to our listener base as a really good source of talent. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know what to do about that. I don't either. I don't really have a problem with it. Pretty neat, though. Uh, okay, the perks are you work in an office that understands and values developers, no cubicles, no unnecessary meetings, the latest hardware, and an 11 out of 12 on the Joel test. Uh, Joel Spolsky, I bet that's what it is. Right, that's what he's referring to. Yep. Design big applications. Our web properties receive millions of hits per week, and databases process hundreds of transactions per second. You also get to show off your work instead of building a scalable data access layer with XML configuration engine that only five people will ever, will ever use. You're going to build a website that everyone, including your mother, can appreciate. I love this description. This is great. <laughs> and finally, a great downtown location with convenient access to metro, restaurants, and parking, competitive salary, benefits, and equity. So if you're interested in that, send us email at uh, .net rocks at franklins.net. Okay, Richard, it's time to introduce Paul, Paul Randall. Uh, our guest, Paul, started in the industry in 1994 working for DEC, that'd be Digital Equipment Corporation for Kids. Uh, on the VMS file system and check repair tools. In 1999, he moved to Microsoft to work on SQL Server, specifically DBCC. For SQL Server 2000, he concentrated on index fragmentation, writing DBCC index defrag and DBCC show contig and various algorithms in DBCC check DB. Uh, during SQL Server 2005 development, he was the lead developer and manager of one of the core dev teams in the storage engine 
responsible for data access and storage, which includes DBCC, allocation, indexes and heaps, pages and records, text, LOB, storage, snapshot, isolation, etc. He also spent several years rewriting DBCC check DB repair. Rewriting. Rewriting. So it sucked the first time is what you're saying? No, 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 no. It oh, okay. It made, right. made it a lot, lot better. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it did suck. The first, okay, never mind. Since SQL Server 2005 shipped, Paul has managed the program management team for the core storage engine to become more focused on customer partner engagement and feature set definition. Paul regularly presents at conferences around the world on high availability, disaster recovery, and storage engine internals. His popular blog is at blogs.mstn.com slash... SQL Server Storage Engine. Say that three times fast. Welcome, Paul Randall. Hey, glad to be here. Uh, glad you could make it. Actually, the only reason I became a PM is because I can spend my time doing all this kind of stuff. Right. Well, we bumped <laughs> into you in Barcelona uh, in November of 2006, and uh, you were having an awful lot of fun, as I recall. Yeah, that was that was good. So you got rid the- of, stopped doing the real work, and now just talk about it. That's it. Yep. Yeah, those are some pretty fundamental things. Index defrag and show contig and check db. Check db is a big one, huh? Yeah, I'm. Uh, well, I used to be right down in the bits and bytes. All right, I'm here. Who's Uh-oh. that? Who is, is that? Hey, this is my session. <laughs> are you guys already recording? Is this Kimberly Trip? <laughs> Kimberly Trip? Oh, shut up! You She's crashed our show, show, man. Come on. Can't you leave me alone for one second? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I can't. You told me to call in, you people that are giving me major. No, wait a second. What? What is? Why are you calling? What is the relationship between you two? <laughs> if we're gonna do this, kids, we better do this. It's purely platonic. Platonic. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, it's going to be tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll be sleeping on the couch tonight. Yeah, maybe that's the case. Are you two an item? Yes. All right. Yes, absolutely we it are. It comes yes, out. We are. Yes. Wow. All right. You... Fine. The cat's out of the bag. Thank you. <laughs> no, I I think that this would be a great time for our discussion on index defrag. Uh, I don't ah. think so. <laughs> <laughs> so is that what you call it? I want to find out what happened in the hot tub. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. Everybody says that we must talk about nothing but SQL, and we actually rarely do. It just so <laughs> happens that we did get into a discussion a couple of days ago while in the hot tub on index defrag, which I know sounds really sad, but it was actually a good discussion. <laughs> and, I mean, Paul, you wrote the tools for defragging indexes in SQL Server, so you ought to know. I d- yeah. I don't know how she can argue with you. When I'm talking to customers, I always say the main reason to, to defrag is to, is to increase range scan performance. Okay? And, of course, there's some stuff that I'm leaving out, which Kimberly loves to say. So, well, Kimberly, no, why don't you say? No, I mean, come on. It's not, it's not. I don't disagree. I mean, range scans are definitely one of the things that can be significantly improved by defragging your objects. I mean, there's no doubt about it, because when you have significant fragmentation and the pages are nowhere near each other, there can't be any efficient way of getting to that data, right? You're, you're just thrashing all over the disk, especially Absolutely. if you have to go to disk. So right. I totally agree. But I wouldn't say that's the only reason, and I, I think my biggest problem with that is that measuring um, slowing range scans over time is something that's not easy to do, 
Um, whereas being able to look and see if your tables are fragmented is something that's easy to do, and you will have other issues that maybe are easier to measure, like slower insert performance, splits, poor cache utilization because your pages aren't as densely packed. And so by just looking to see if you have fragmentation, it's something that you can fix. It's something that you can easy, easily automate. You don't want to just rebuild for rebuilding's sake, but you know if you have a maintenance window and you have fragmentation, it's, it's something that you could easily use that maintenance window to do. But then there's the whole debate on defrag versus reorg. Okay, I have a question for Paul. We asked Kimberly before the show about when the last time you made Whoopi was. <laughs> See, now, Paul, I told you not to trust these guys. <laughs> I told you to be very, very afraid of getting on the phone with them and admitting that we are in a relationship. <laughs> we are seriously doomed. <laughs> <laughs> is Whoopi some kind of American Jello or something? I mean, I'm just a poor British boy. I don't understand. Yeah, it's cool Whoopi. What is Whoopi? You get it in the dairy, frozen dairy. Uh, concussion. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We've used dairy products before. Yeah. <laughs> so are you two am, getting married? I, Come I on, this is what people. Up. This is no longer a technical debate. It never was. It never was. What? No, well, I, I think if the truth's now out, there must be DBAs with their hearts breaking all over yeah. the world right now. It's like we do not believe in sex before marriage, so they're they're fine. They still maybe have a chance with one of us. Okay, <laughs> I'm not saying which one. Ah, uh, sure, <laughs> sure. Oh my God, I am um, very afraid. And getting back to the relevant point here, Kim's point is that there are more reasons to defrag and index than just dealing with range scans. Absolutely, yeah. and and I just want to I just want to always say what I think the main one that people can understand most easily is. That's why I've always harped on about the, the rain scan perf. But, of course, she's absolutely right. Well, that's a show. Thanks very much for uh, listening. And... Can you just end on she's absolutely right? I, I like that. In yeah. fact, I might, I might take that small snippet and just replay that over and over again at various critical times in my life. But this is how I just make sure I don't have to sleep on the couch tonight after all the other comments that I'm going to say. <laughs> Yeah, and see, now I've got to hang up and go back and teach, so now I'm, I'm afraid of the things that you guys are going to say. <laughs> well, we're pure professionals. Absolutely. Oh, God. Yep. Paul, be very afraid. <laughs> All right, Kimberly, good luck with your class then. Thanks, you guys. Have fun. Bye, honey. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dear. Bye. <laughs> Don't forget to bring in the groceries. <laughs> Hey, have you have you sorted our grocery list yet? <laughs> oh, I've got a database set up to do that. Oh, yeah. I am it too. And, and we normalize it as well. Frag <laughs> that table. It's taking too long. <laughs> Hence right, the guys. whole range Cheers. scan issue. Bye. Bye. Select from produce where. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so what the hell are we talking about again? Whoopee. Databases, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Never saw the newlywed game. No. Ah, uh, you're in for a treat. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. Okay. Let's Google it. <laughs> oh, boy, okay. too much So fun. I find it fascinating, Paul, that you've always sort of been in the defragmentation business, even back as far as DEC and VMS. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, um, one of the things that I first saw when I came over to the SQL Server team was that there was no defrag algorithm. And right. people, were, people were always annoyed that the only thing they could do was do a, a, a DB re-index, and that was offline. Right. So it makes sense that the, the first thing that I got to write was the, an offline uh, alternative for them. 
an online alternative? Oh, sorry, an online alternative. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We always had the offline alternative. Right. Although now in 2005, we've actually can re-index live. You can now do, uh, you can do a whole bunch of stuff online. You can, you can drop and create indexes online. You can rebuild them online. You can move partitions. You can move indexes online. All kinds of cool stuff you can do. Yeah, I, a lot of ways I think 2005 has been a, uh, a sort of administrative infrastructure upgrade more than anything else. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff there to help uh, DBAs, both in the tools and in the, uh, the actual syntax. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications, and you can find them online at www.telerik.com. Hey Paul, um, on your blog recently, you posted a uh, uh, you have a post about how long does your check DV take? Oh yeah, <laughs> in which you asked people to send in the, their results to you. Did you get a lot of responses? Uh, I've had ten, twenty responses so far. Have they been as any any surprises? Not that I've seen so far. No, I mean there's pe- a lot of variety in the size of databases. Um, lots of good sized databases, half a terabyte or more. And, in fact, we, um, I did an always-on boot camp, in fact, with Kimberly a couple of weeks ago where we had a, a bunch of internal to Microsoft partners and um, uh, some hardware partners in. And one of the guys from HP that was there offered to run a CheckDB on their three-terabyte uh, data warehouse they were using for TPCH benchmarking runs. Wow. Um, they, they got it to run in eight hours on three terabytes. And, and it's funny to say, to offer to run that, that's really a gesture. It, oh yeah, absolutely. it is a major thing to run a check DB on a database that big. Right. I mean, if you if your hardware can't handle it, it's going to take a long, long time. So I mean, there's a there's a ton of different factors. You want to you want to go through the factors that that sure yeah how long it takes. I mean, this is one of the questions I get asked. You know, how long does check DB take? How long is it going to take to run on my database? And the the answer I like to give to lots of questions is, hey, it depends. Okay. Yeah, that's the correct answer to everything. Right. Absolutely. Um, it's a good way of getting yourself off the hook, especially if you're busy. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, the, the things that, that are going to affect how long CheckDB takes to run, obviously the size of the database, that's a no-brainer, right? And then um, you've got to think if you've got any other load on the server, you, have you got any other concurrent I.O. load, you've got any concurrent CPU activity, um, CheckDB is going to read every single page and every allocated page in the database, so it's going to put a huge I.O. load on the server. And you're not just um, talking about I.O. load from SQL Server, but if there's anything else running on that server. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's going to put a load on your on your your I/O subsystem. So if there's anything else using that, then you know you don't want to be doing a big check DB at the same time. Um, right. CPU activity. You know some of the uh, algorithms that are in in check DB are very CPU intensive because they're they're you know reconciling facts from all different parts of the database. Uh, there, there's one algorithm, for instance, that that checks that for every row in a base table, let's say heap or a clustered index, uh, there's exactly one matching row in each non-clustered index. Okay, and and vice versa. Right. And uh, if you've if you've used the options that allow that to run, that's going to run. That takes up thirty percent of this the total CPU that JDB uses. Wow! So I mean, you, one of the one of the things I say to VLDB customers to to get their run times down is try running with uh, the physical underscore only option because that turns off all of these deeper logical checks and makes the runtime a lot faster. It, it turns it from a CPU bound process into an I/O bound process. Yeah, just yeah. physically go and touch all my uh, allocations. Look at every single allocated page, audit the page, 
if there's any page checksums on the page, then check the page checksums. So, I mean, that's a really good way of being able to check for any gross hardware errors. Right, uh, as opposed to the actual CRC work of making sure everything's consistent. Right. So, uh, okay, so that's another couple of factors. Then there's, is there any concurrent update activity on the database? Okay. So, for, for 2000, um, well, first thing that we have to do when we do a check DB is we have to get a consistent view of the database. So, for SQL Server 2000, we did what's called log analysis. So at the end of reading through all the, the, uh, the pages in the database, we have to look and see what transactions happened at the, during the time that we were reading all the pages. Right. Poss possible we saw some inconsistencies during that time. And so what we have to do is we have to internally run recovery on all that transaction log. So if you've got a whole bunch of update activity, then you're going to generate tons of transaction log. And so the, um, the re internal recovery of all that transaction log is going to take a long time. Okay. And that's so that just because you're doing transactions time. while CheckDB is going on. Right. Now, CheckDB is online, so you can do transactions, but if you've got a really heavy transaction workload, then it is going to take a lot longer. Okay? Right. Um, so then there's the throughput capabilities of the I.O. subsystem. That one's obvious, right? We're going we're gonna to read all these pages, so we're going to generate tons of I.O. So if your I.O. subsystem can only do, I don't know, say 10 megabits a second, you're just going to take a long, long time to do a 10 terabyte database. Yeah, and, you, and if it's a... If it's a problem, it's it's going to show up in disk queuing. The disks right. are just very, very busy. Yeah, your your disk queue lengths are going to be pretty long. Um, number of CPUs on the box, okay? And if you're running Enterprise Edition. So an Enterprise Edition on uh, 2000 and 2005, uh, CheckDB can run in parallel, okay? So the way we do that is we actually use the query processor internally to, to drive the actions that CheckDB takes. And so the query processor can decide how far to parallelize CheckDB. So if you have, uh, and this is only an enterprise edition, so if you have, uh, say, eight CPUs and you've got a moderate load, then the QP may decide to, to split CheckDB over four CPUs. So if you have a multi-CPU box and uh, it's not very heavily loaded, then you can get a much faster runtime because CheckDB is going to parallelize. And it's also going to parallelize, by parallelizing in terms of threads, it's also going to parallelize the I.O. Right. So you'll get better I.O. throughput too. So it's like you're working multiple tables simultaneously while you're doing this. Can yep, that be a problem, though, running with multiple CPUs? Oh, absolutely it can. So um, we find that uh, some application vendors, for instance, SAP, they like to uh, encourage their customers to turn off parallelism um, while they're running CheckDB so they get a predictable, a more predictable runtime and more predictable load on the server. And so there's a uh, documented trace like 2528, that's uh, it's documented in the books online for CheckDB that actually prevents CheckDB ever going parallel. Cool. And this is only an issue with the Enterprise Edition anyway. Any other edition is single-threaded no matter what. Absolutely, yep. Okay. Um, so next factor, let's say, uh, the speed of the disk where TempDB is placed. Okay, so this one's hmm. not obvious. Um, yeah. The way, that, the way that CheckDB works is, think about the think about the way that you could check the consistency of a very large B-tree. Now, the, the obvious brute force method is um, you read a page, you see that there's a bunch of links to other pages, so you follow the links to make sure they're correct, and right. so on and so on and so on. So you're doing a kind of brute force depth first check. Now, think of the I.O. characteristics of doing that. You're going to take a whole bunch of random page reads all over the place, so it's not yeah. very efficient. You're going to um, go all over the drive. Yeah, you'll go all, all over the drive. So what we instead try to do is we try to make a, our I.O.s as efficient as possible. So... What we, what we want to do is uh, do one single scan across the database. So we, we actually read everything in allocation order, and we generate uh, what we call facts about things that we've seen. So, for instance, um, if, 
you imagine a very, very simple bee tree with a, a single uh, root page and a couple of child pages at the leaf level, and there's links between the various pages. So we might read a par the, 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 the root page, which we call the parent. We generate a fact saying, hey, we saw this page. It's the parent page. Um, this page is the parent of, let's say, page A at the leaf level and page B at the leaf level. Okay? And then right. at some later point, we may read those leaf level pages and generate facts about those saying, hey, we saw this page A, we saw this page B, page A points to page B, and vice versa. So we, we have these facts about the, the, the different pages that we've seen, and we throw all those into the query processor, we sort them by page ID and so on, we get them back out in a, in a sorted list, and we do what's called aggregation on them. So, uh, for instance, checking the linkage in a B-tree, every page that we see has to have uh, three facts about it. It has to have a parent page pointing to it, it has to have a, what we call an actual fact, which is we read that page, and we have to have the linkage fact at the leaf level. So, right. Um, so by generating these facts, we can read the pages in any order, okay, and we can still do all the reconciliation and aggregation to make sure that they're consistent. So more um, relevantly, you're, you're reading them in the order that they're written, so the read's fast, right. knowing that eventually it's all going to match up as if you read it deep. Yep. And Absolutely. if it doesn't, then you've found a problem. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, so if you have... Say and I was, was just thinking, Carl, while he was talking like that, it's like, do you understand why he hangs out with Kim? No, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all about nice indexing and, you know, getting it right. Right. Do you, do you find it that it's better if you defrag first before you no, run Check TV? It makes no difference at all because we read an allocation order. Right. Hmm. So what, what we actually do is we, we take a bunch of IAM chains, um, and I'll explain what those are in a minute if you want. We take a bunch of IAM chains, we merge them all together. So we read a bunch of pages for multiple indexes and tables all at the same time. Okay. Hmm. We generate all these different facts, and because they're keyed by uh, page ID, object ID, index ID, none of them get mixed up. Yeah. Okay. So going back to the tempdb disk speed issue, okay. um, we're generating all these facts, and we've got to store them somewhere. Okay. So we store them in a work table in memory, but if you've got a very, very large database, it's possible that that work table is going to get bigger than the size of memory you've got. So it has to spill, and it's going to spill to tempdb. Right. Okay. So we've got these, this, this fact table that's spilling out to tempdb, which we're reading and writing from. So if your tempdb disks are really crappy, then that's going to slow down checkdb performance. Okay? Sure. So there's that. I, I'm finding tempdb on SQL 2005 boxes is just way busier. It is. There's a bunch of extra stuff that, that uses tempdb. Um, we actually put out a white paper on working with tempdb in 2005 that Sunil Agawal and my team wrote um, with a couple of other people that details a whole bunch of DMVs that you can use to see what the load is on tempdb and where the allocations and so on are coming from. So you can do a whole bunch of tuning. In fact, Sunil does a very good um, presentation on uh, tuning tempdb and troubleshooting tempdb. He's actually going to be at uh, SQL Connections in Orlando uh, for Microsoft Day on the 25th of March, where he's going to do that presentation. So awesome. you guys might want to check that out. And we'll be there, too. We'll be there. That's right. We'll, We're not uh, doing I'll anything that too. day, as a matter of fact. Yep. And my little acronym police call says DMV is Dynamic Management View. Absolutely. Yep. Good. Thanks, Richard. Because okay. <laughs> he slips them in there it. fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Three more things that, that affect the speed of CheckDB. Okay. Um, complexity of the database schema. So I described how we generate all these different facts about different things in the database. Now, the more complex the schema is, then the more things we're going to have to generate facts about and the more checks we're going to have to run. So, for instance, I said earlier on that the the non-clustered index checking algorithm can take up to 30% of the CPU. If you don't have any non-clustered indexes, then we're not going to run that algorithm. Okay? Right. It's the same so goes a whole... for a bunch of other stuff. But if you don't have any non-clustered indexes, 
you probably yeah. got problems. You probably got problems anyway. So. Is there any way yeah. to, to quantify, and I know everything's relative, but is there any way to quantify how complex a given schema is? You know, is it, um, is it possible to, to miscalculate that? Well, okay, so it's possible to go, it's not, it's not really possible to say what's too complex or not. It depends on what your application needs, right? Yeah. Um, it's possible to go overboard. So, for instance, uh, there's a bunch of new features in, in SQL Server 2005, for instance, partitioning um, and uh, row overflow, which is the ability to have rows that are greater than 8K. Mm -hmm, so right. I've seen customers that um, change every column in their, their schema to be varchar 8000 okay, or varchar max, for instance, so that they can spill over. And they, they go nuts and have hundreds of partitions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, talking of range scan performance, we touched on earlier yeah. on when, when Kimberly was so nice to join us. Um, range scan performance doesn't just depend on fragmentation. Okay? If you have uh, rows that are over 8K, then one of the columns has been pushed off into text storage. So if you're doing a range scan and scanning these rows in, your, the read ahead for the, the index or table that the, the rows live in may be wonderful. But if you're having to pull in rows from uh, row overflow storage, then each one of those column values you're pulling in from row overflow storage is a random I.O. Hmm. Right, because it doesn't know how long it is. Sure. It, and it doesn't know where it is in the disk. So it's very, very difficult to do read ahead mm -hmm. on, on these randomly placed things. Mm -hmm. okay? So you may think you've got perfect fragmentation, but your range scan performance still sucks. And it's because you've uh, you've allowed uh, larger than 8K rows. And, of course, there's no way to, to predict which rows are going to have columns that are off-row. You know, the, the, the column that gets, gets pushed off-row for one row may be different than the column that gets pushed off-row for another row. Right. So, so you've got to be careful that uh, even though there's all these new features, you don't just use them for the hell of them. You've got this to, is you've traditional got to sure Microsoft behavior, though. Give us enough rope to hang ourselves with. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> One of the things that we don't do very well, and we're working on it, is you know giving really good guidelines on you know what features to use and when and, and best practices and so on. It's always remarkable how much it's your fault that they misuse your tool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we give people nice nice spangly features to use, and we don't give them a whole bunch of information on on when they should really use them and when not to use them, and right. you know what the trade offs and so on are. Yeah, this will punish you if you do dumb things with it. It's not and, like a, you go to a pharmacy, you know, you get warnings on the bottle, you know. Yeah. yeah. Warning, don't be dumb. Yeah, do not take an overdose of this. It's going to kill you kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So so there's complexity of the database schema, right? Um, what else? Oh, which options you specify. So I said there's an option you can use with physical only that will cut out all the logical checks and make things run faster. So that's a good example of that. There's also an option that you can turn off just the non-clustered index checks, which is no index. You can use that, and that cuts down the, the speed, too. But you're um, also cutting down the validation of CheckDB. It is cutting down the validation, but if you use physical only and you've got page checksums turned on, um, then you are going to find any hardware course corruptions as long as page checksums have been written. And that's, that's another. Let's keep that on the stack, and I'll talk about page checksums in a minute. All right. Um, and the, I guess the last thing is... Uh, the number and type of corruptions that we find. So there are some algorithms that, that don't get run unless we find corruptions. So, for instance, the, the non-clustered index checking algorithm, it, instead of actually, uh, when we find a row, going and doing the, the, the lookup in the non-clustered index to see whether the row really exists, we use a, a kind of complicated hashing algorithm just to, uh, the same kind of fact generation algorithm that I described before. Um, 
So if we find that there's any mismatched facts, there's, there's no way to, to match that back to a particular index or table row. Right. You, all you now know is there's something wrong. Something's wrong somewhere. So what we have to do is we have to rescan all the rows again, looking for rows that match to that mismatched fact. And then we actually go and do what's we, what we call the deep dive, where we actually go and do the exact lookup in the table or index that we think is missing. So, so that algorithm is extremely expensive to run because then you're taking a whole bunch of random IOs. Um, but that's also but, the algorithm you wanted run. You've now found a problem. We've now found a problem. So the thing is, if we find a problem, it could trigger one of these long-running algorithms. So, in fact, um, we, had a, we had a customer that ran into this problem um, about a year ago. And their runtime went from seven hours to 37 hours. Ow. And Yeah, exactly. Ow. And it was while they were down. And they didn't know that it was because we found a, we found a problem and we we're going to go and do one of these deep dive algorithms. So, so now in uh, SP2, we've put in something in the error log that says, hey, CheckDB's found a problem. We're going to go and do a deep dive. So you've got some indication that uh, your runtime is going to be an awful lot longer. Right. Rather than thinking maybe I got something wrong with my disk subsystem that's slowing everything down or right. any other right. number of reasons that might make CheckDB suddenly long. Right. And uh, one of the other things that we did in 2005 was we actually put in progress reporting for, for CheckDB that's never been there before. So if you look in um, the DMV sys.dmexec sessions, then um, there's a, uh, a column that will tell you which phase of CheckDB CheckDB is currently in. And cool. there's, a, there's a list of all the phases in the books online for CheckDB. So you can, you can get an idea how, how far through CheckDB it is. That doesn't necessarily tell you how much longer it's going to take. No, it doesn't. Just how far it's gotten. Right. But if you know, you know, it's always a good idea, especially for disaster recovery, to know how long your CheckDB usually takes so that you can yeah. get an idea whether something's wrong. I mean, these guys should have guessed going from seven hours. Once it got after, uh, over about 10 hours, they would have been going, uh-oh, something's not right here. Yeah, yeah. You, your instinct should be right based on your previous experiences. Absolutely. And in, and the reality for me then, understanding this, is that if I normally have CheckDB running at six hours and suddenly it's ten hours, I'm like, oh, it's found something. Right. And that's right. good. Now it's yep. doing its job. Yeah. Now, the one problem that we have is that you don't get any results until the end. So, so you never no find way... out what the problem was. Right. There's no way for, it to, for you to definitely know that there's a problem. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it could run one of these algorithms and find that there isn't anything wrong. And then That's really not. freak you out. Comes back and goes, no, no, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's yeah. fine. So where did you go? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've never seen it do that. Usually when it, when it runs longer, it's because it's found some problem. Right. But it would be nice for customers if we could tell them, uh, you know, we're an errand to check DB and we've already found some corruptions. So then the customer could decide, okay, I'm just going to stop this and restore for my backups now. Right. Yeah. You know? Why waste the time to try and diagnose it all when I know I, I know there's a reason why there's a problem. You've now proven to me there's a problem. Let's go to our backup strategy. Yeah. Now, saying that, though, there's a trade-off because um, you, before you just restore from a backup, you want to you figure out what happened so you can make sure it doesn't happen again. Right. The odds are if you've got some kind of hardware corruption and you restore, say it's a transient corruption, and you restore your backup and everything's fine again, um, the odds are that the corruption's going to happen again. So, And you're going to keep going through this loop. And this brings me to my next question, which is, you know, I've met lots of people who run CheckDB and never had a problem in their lives. What mm -hmm. causes corruption? Yeah, good question. Corruption? Yeah. Um, I mean, if it was access, I could, you know, using it would... Yeah, rebooting the machine will do that. <laughs> but right. this is SQL Server we're talking about here. <laughs> right, so... Um, SQL Server itself is, is very, very stable, okay? 
uh, compared to versions like 6.5, I mean, we all know there used to be corruption problems that, that came because of the server in 6.5, but from 7.0 onwards, SQL Server's been extremely stable. Uh, I'm not saying that there haven't been bugs. Of course, there have been a few bugs here and there. Um, I'll admit that. But uh, what we find now is that the very vast majority of, of problems are caused by things underneath SQL Server. Now, that's not just the hardware. There's also a lot of software layers on, between SQL Server and the Oxide. Um, but when I say hardware, I mean everything underneath SQL Server. It's usually something there. That, so, that like the RAID controller driver. Right. I mean, there's been various bugs in firmware and so on, and you get bit rot on the drives and, you know, cosmic rays, all this kind of stuff that people talk about. So, I mean, yeah, they're, cosmic rays are not beyond realms. Sometimes data randomly changes. Right. So, um, but there is a tool we've just put out um, called SQL IO SIM. That allows you that, that people should run before they install a SQL Server, or if they, they think they've got problems, they can run it uh, uh, on an existing system that is going to stress test the I/O subsystem underneath SQL Server. Okay? That's cool. Where do I yeah. get that? Very cool. Um, if you look on if you look on uh, my blog, there's a link to it there. If you search for SQL I/O stress on MSN or Google or your favorite search engine, um, you should come up to a link to it on on TechNet or MSDN, wherever wherever it is for download. Um, the, if you go to the blog, there's a, there was a post on, uh, in October last year by one of the guys on my team that, that, that advertises this. And so it's, it's free, totally free. There's an x86, x64, ia64 version. Um, it, it simulates the I.O. workload for SQL Server, and you can configure it to, to throw in bulk loads, DBCCs, read-ahead queries, anything like that. So you can really stress test your I.O. subsystem, and it'll, it'll, give you, it'll let you know if it finds any problems where what it wrote to the disks wasn't what it got back. Interesting. So. And we get to eliminate the app. We get to eliminate SQL Server itself. Right. You, now you're just talking about straight up pounding on the I.O. Yeah. Well, you know, apps, people say, you know, can the app cause corruption? The apps cannot cause disk corruption. Okay? No. They can't cause data corruption. They can cause problems with, uh, you know, problems with constraints or by violating whatever inherent business logic you've got built in. But apps cannot cause disk corruption. Yeah. I mean, that's going to cause ChatGPT to barf. Apps can't do that. No. Renaming mm. all your customers to John Smith is a kind sure. of corruption, but right. nothing's going to help you. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and there are different ways you can mitigate that kind of stuff. But um, so, you know, for instance, you could put. Uh, oh, I a, forgot that damn where clause again. Yeah, exactly. Jesus. You the where clause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, always do that. Oh, yeah. stupid. <laughs> <laughs> So this is one of the things that Kimberly talks a lot about in, in, in her sessions, about how to stop users being able to you know, corrupt, in quotes, data. And one of the easiest ways is to not give people direct access to the tables and to, let people, uh, to make people do things through SPs. Store procedures are your friend. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or to use security, schema security that we've got now in, in 2005, or to, to put DDL triggers on their database so that people can't accidentally drop tables. You know, there's a bunch of different ways you can mitigate this stuff. The, the best thing to do is always to prevent corruption rather than have to try and recover from it. Right. So, but sometimes with hardware corruption, you can't prevent it. It just happens. So, well, know, and the big challenge is diagnosing that. Right. Uh, you know, developers tend to want to blame the hardware, and the IT folks Absolutely. tend to want to blame the software. Yeah. Having a tool to just say, all right, the hardware works. Right. Now let's go look elsewhere. Right. So perfect segue into talking about page checksums, right? Okay. So, yeah. um, the same customer that I was talking about earlier on, whose CheckDB went from seven hours to 37 hours, 
they were running on, on SQL 2000. And uh, they got into the, the, the classic software to hardware finger pointing debate. And I was on the phone with their CIO and uh, he was saying, you know, we believe it was SQL Server. Okay. And all I could say back was, well, you know, the vast majority of cases we see, this kind of corruption is, is the hardware, it's not the software, because we haven't seen it anywhere else, we don't know of any bugs, you know, yada, yada, yada. Right. And what I said was, you know, but you're right, there, we don't have a smoking gun. We can't point at anything and say, look, this shows it's the hardware. So um, in 2005, we added this new feature called page checksums. So what a page checksum is, it's a CRC-based checksum. And the very last thing that SQL Server does before it writes out a page to disk is to stamp one of these checksums on the page. The very first thing it does when it reads it in is if, the, if there is a page checksum, it checks the checksum to see whether it's correct or not. And so, so this is an easy uh, flag for it to know the page is valid. Absolutely. So if that checksum has changed, we know that something underneath SQL Server changed that page. So that gives us our smoking gun to say, hey, look, this page changed. It wasn't SQL Server. Okay? Right. Something else is doing this. And you yep. mentioned this when we were talking about how long CheckDB takes, that right. you can safely run in physical mode if you've got page checksums working for to help you do data consistency checking. Right. So, okay. yeah. Hmm. So, page, you know, physical-only mode is going gonna, is gonna to read every allocated page, and as long as there's a page checksum on that page, the act of reading the page will cause the page checksum to be checked. Now, here's a gotcha, right? If you, turn, if you upgrade a database to 2005 and you turn on page checksums, absolutely nothing happens. It's, it's not, <laughs> so it's a good feature. It's a great feature, yeah. There's no performance impact at all. No, um, seriously. Nothing happens until the page has been read in, changed, and then gets written back out again. Right. Hmm. Okay. We did not provide a tool in 2005 that will go and, in quotes, touch every page and write a page checksum on there on the page. Right. Okay. So it's only after the page is modified that you're going to get a new checksum. And the right. next time it's read is the first chance you've got to pick up a consistency problem. Yeah. So, so the, um, the and I guess you, what you're saying here then is if you're going to don't use page checksums, if you think you have a corruption, because it's not going to find it for you. No, 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 absolutely. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying at all. Oh, okay. Um, you Sorry. Should, you, absolutely. You should turn it on. Okay. But should um, you just run if, check DB? If you already have a corruption, then it's not going to help. Right. But what it may do, it may help in future if there's nothing, if you can't figure out where the corruption is or what's causing the corruption, okay, if, you, if, you know, if you've got this classic software hardware finger pointing going on and the hardware guys don't want to run hardware diagnostics, they say that all their firmware is up to date and so on, you can turn this on and it'll catch it the next time. Right. Okay? Although um, CheckDB will catch it as well. CheckDB will catch it as well as, as long as there's a page checksum. You know, if, if there isn't a page checksum and something's gone wrong, it'll manifest itself as a bunch of corruptions that ChatGPT reports. Right, which okay. don't really give you a clear pointer as to where things are. Right. You There's know, no I way mean, for a page checksum to fail other than something beneath SQL Server. Uh, no. Well, oh, okay, there is. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> so you could have an in-memory scribbler, okay? A, a rogue extended store procedure, for instance, that, that goes and, and scribbles all over memory, right? Um, so in Enterprise Edition, there is part of the lazy writer will randomly pick up uh, clean pages in the buffer pool that have a page checksum on them and recalculate the checksum to make sure that the page hasn't been scribbled on by, by, by some rogue process. Oh, I wow. get it. That's, that's clever. Yeah. Boy, you so guys the, are pretty clever. You guys are smart. <laughs> well, the guy that does the buffer pool, he's pretty smart. It also takes a certain level of cynicism. True. Just say, oh, you know... Here's Absolutely. another way people could screw this up. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it, it 
it's all to help customers be able to diagnose things and to help you know product support not have to spend hours and hours working out what's gone wrong when there's a very simple answer. You know, if we can provide the smoking gun, it cuts down everybody's time. For right. sure, especially you know? yours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get pulled into several of these. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's page checksums. Now, um, so in there's no way to to touch every page apart from like rebuilding all your indexes or doing an in place update of of all the rows in the table. However, I am still I publicized this in my blog back in November. I haven't finished it yet. I am working on a tool that will go and make sure a page checksum is written on every allocated page using some nice undocumented DBCC commands. So I'm still working on that. I hope to release that within a month or so. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Well, you blogged uh, last year, I think, about uh, some undocumented DBCC commands. I did. Would this have anything to do with that? uh, Sort of. Different DBCC commands. Yeah. Okay. we, we came out of the closet. I've now, what's the, what's up with that undocumented? De- do you just like do you go to the boss and say, "Hey, how many more can I release on my blog today?" <laughs> I mean, no, no, it's 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 all up to me actually. Um, so there are more then that you're not sharing. Yeah, there's there's about a hundred undocumented DBCC commands. Wow, and and you know most of them are benign, and we use them for testing. Um, some of them are extremely dangerous. Um, you know, there, there's the the, the one for rebuilding your log, and I can get onto my high horse about that in a minute if you want. I um, see. So you're really only putting them out there as necessi- necessity warrants. Right. Now, the, the ones that I blogged about, the main one I blogged about was one called DBCC Page that lets you look at the page contents. And that and, you know it's been an open secret that that exists for you know 10 years. So given that it, it helps people understand what's going on, if they really want to look at stuff, um, I don't see any reason for them not to use that. And it's, you know, it's a very stable command. We use it extensively in our testing. Um, so, you know, why not let people have some access to it and explain how it works for them? So people that want to poke about can. Well, cool. Cool. So we talked about CheckDB. We talked about corruption. Once you find corruption, is the only alternative then to go back to a backup? Is there yeah, a repair process? <laughs> yeah, there is some, there's some repair stuff. Um, the only the alternative of going to back to your backup only works if you actually have a backup. Yes, it only <laughs> works if your backup's valid. It's remarkable how many backups are discovered aren't actually working at yes. that point. Yes. I can't, how no. many times have you been on a call when the end, oh, you say, "All right, God. well, just uh, restore the backup," and then there's silence, yeah. right? I know. You know, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a forum I run on on SQLteam.com. Uh, you know, data corruption stuff. And you know, my standard answer is, you know, okay, have you got backups? And the number of times people come back and say, well. Yeah, we've got a backup, but this is the first time I've ever tried restoring it, and it's corrupt. Or, you know, oh, uh, actually, it's zero length, and it's been zero length for years, and we didn't notice it. <laughs> uh, that, that, that kind of thing, you know. We've been yeah, backing up DevNull for, you know. Some guy's years. been rotating blank tapes for us for the yeah. past four years. <laughs> yeah, but when we oh. store our tapes in the microwave or something like oh. that. There you go. Yeah, they're right <laughs> underneath the magnet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I use them to store my magnet collection. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, one of the things we say is you don't have a backup until you've tried to do a restore. Yeah, there's a bunch of exercises I do with a with a data team, including the great power pull. Like until somebody's seen that done and seen how it recovers. 
What's that? Is that, kind of, is that kind of a fitness thing you're doing? The great power pool? Yeah. The box of backup tapes kind of thing? Funny, like that's not what I went to. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I remember doing this back in the beginning of relational databases, that whole, when ACID was an interesting concept. I actually don't remember the beginning of databases. I'm not that old. Okay. Richard, did you just say when ACID was an interesting concept? Yes, ACID being an acronym. Did you graduate from Berkeley? <laughs> did anybody? Now, I know you listened to a lot of Laurie Anderson back in the 70s and 80s, but come oh, on you know, now. Now, ACID stands for, if I still remember this, atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. Give that man a prize. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and and the demo we all did back then was in mid-transaction pulling the power plug out of the database. Everybody right. did acid back then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just what everybody did. <laughs> yeah. Okay? Daddy oh, still loves you, honey. It's okay. That, you know, that reminds me of, of one of the, the, the horrible pieces of advice I see on the internet. So I, I tell the story, right, of um, there's a Scottish comedian called Billy Connolly. Who tells oh, the story yeah. of, of his dad uh, in the, the you know the sixties and seventies, sitting having breakfast, eating his porridge, and listening to the radio. And there, there's like a political commentator on the radio. And every so often, his dad will like scream no at the radio. And this radio <laughs> has this kind of splattered effect with dried porridge and stuff. So um, <laughs> imagine, imagine me reading the news groups at lunchtime, sitting in my office, and like screaming no at the uh, at the munch and this nice sandwiches and soup and stuff all over my monitor. Beware the one-legged yeah. man! <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, one of the bits of advice I saw, somebody posted a, on one of the news groups, how can I get corruption in my database so I can test my CheckDB logic? Ah. And this guy, this guy replies back saying, go to one of your disk drives and flick the power switch on and off a few times. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Not only will that cause corruption, it'll also fry your hard drive. <laughs> right. Well, you said you wanted corruption. Yeah, exactly. There you go. You didn't get yeah. any qualifications on it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, backups. Um, yeah, you've got, you've got to make sure that your backup's actually valid. Otherwise, you're, you're, you know, there's no, you've got no choice but to use repair. And you don't want to use repair. So Really? You, um, you recommend going back every time? Well, here's the thing. Repair is going to delete stuff. I mean, we chose the name Repair Allowed Data Loss. To be, you know, to be kind of uh, indicative of what's going to happen. Yeah, be aware. So, you are yeah. still giving me permission to remove data from your database in an incoherent manner. Exactly, but that was too long of an option to, to use. <laughs> so we just used the data loss. <laughs> I actually wanted to have the word daft in there somewhere as well. But, uh, we weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> you daft bugger. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, I would actually use stronger language, but that's just... <laughs> Anyway, so, I mean, think, here's, here's an example, right? So there's these, the two worst things you can do to your database. The first one is rebuilding your log, okay? Now, think of what the log contains. It contains all the active transactions. Right. Okay? So if you, here's an example. If you think of a, a, a bank and you've got two accounts in your bank, one's a checking account, one's a, a deposit account, you want to move $1,000 from your checking account to your deposit account. And so the, the transaction gets... Uh, the transaction's done as two actual database transactions. One decrements your checking account by $1,000, and the other one increments your uh, deposit account by $1,000. It gets halfway through, and the bank's system crashes. Okay? So it comes back up, and the, the, uh, the junior DBA is thinking, well, you know, well, this is taking too long. He shuts down the server again and deletes the transaction log. Okay? So the server right. comes back up, and there's no transaction log. So it's lost all the in-flight transactions, including the transaction that uh, decremented $1,000 from your checking account. 
that transaction doesn't get a chance to roll back. So you've lost $1,000. Right. Okay? So that's rebuilding your log. Now, sometimes you have to do that. If, if there's no backup and the transaction log is corrupt, the database is suspect, there's no choice but to rebuild the log. And sometimes product support will actually walk a customer through that just to get them back up and running. But they'll also make sure that they run repair to get things back into a consistent state. But even then, you know, consistent state is a relative concept here. The data integrity of the database is, is suspect. Absolutely. It you may know, or may I not be violated, I'm, but it is suspect. Right. You know, I, I ask whenever I'm, I'm presenting on this stuff, I ask somebody if they know what the purpose of repair is. And the purpose of repair is not to protect your data. The purpose of repair is to make the database structurally consistent. So that you okay? can get online. So you can get online and get running. Now, who knows what it may have deleted to do that? Right. Okay. And, that, and you've made a decision that that is more important than being consistent in the data. You need to be right. up. Right. And so I have this discussion with customers all the time. What's more important, data accuracy or being up? Hmm. Right. Hmm. Right. So using that same banking example, imagine that your two accounts are stored on one database page and uh, the DBA doesn't have a backup and that page gets corrupt somehow and the DBA runs repair allow data loss and that's the only copy of the database. So Repair decides that to fix the database, it has to delete that page. So it deletes the page along with your two bank accounts. Right. Gone. You know, I mean, it's a really contrived example, but it's, you know, it's really simple. For no, because the real world's going to be uglier than that. Oh, absolutely. Right. You know? It deleted your current address, left your old address behind, and half of one of your accounts. I can, right. I can foresee a nightmare scenario where you log into a website and, you, and it's, uh, it brings you to a page where it says, you know, we underwent some issues. Please check your your profile data to make sure it's okay. And you get there, and, and it's somebody else's name and address. You know, yeah. right? Yeah. Don't. Or you know, imagine a, a website that's selling things, and you know, it deletes a couple of pages, so it deletes you know several hundred orders. So those customers are going to be really pissed off, and they're right. probably never going to come back to your website again. So you. Not only have you, have you caused a bunch of people to get annoyed, you've lost a lot of money. But you've got to decide, was it, would you have made more money getting back up quickly and sacrificing those old right. customers right. and staying so, I mean, down it, to protect the existing customers? That's right. It comes down to your SLAs. Yeah. And, you, know, you know, the number of customers that don't know, well, the number of DBAs that don't know what their business's SLAs are. SLA? Uh, service level agreement. Right. Oh, how, much, okay, how much yeah. data can you afford to lose? How right. much downtime can you afford to take? Well, in a, uh, and a, most banks, I think all banks really, but I've met some pretty stupid banks over the years. <laughs> well, uh, the truth is consistency is more important. We'd rather yeah. be down than yep. wrong. Yep. And they make yep. that choice. And so that means repairs out the window. You don't ever do that. Right. Hmm. But what if they don't have a backup? What if all the backups are bad? Well, they then have, they're not going to have a choice, right? Yeah, they have to do something. Then, yeah. they, but it, you, they have to violate their own agreement. The, the bottom line is, if you're, if it's more important to be right than down, then your backups better be working. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, these 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 two things, rebuilding a log and running repair, they're about the two worst things you can do to your database. So, uh, I combined them into a new feature for a SQL Server 2005 called Emergency Mode Repair. Ah. Haha. You so, couldn't just call it screw database? <laughs> <laughs> screw database, yeah. yeah. Um, no, the legal unscrew, unscrew database. <laughs> Un unscrew database, yeah. Um, so the reason we did this is because people do get themselves into these situations where they're hosed completely, and they'd have to call up product support to get them to walk through uh, how to get themselves back online, or they'd follow some horrible advice on the Internet, and they'd rebuild their log, but they wouldn't run repair, and they'd get into all kinds of problems. So what we did was we actually documented emergency mode for 2005. Um, so there's a documented way of putting the database in emergency mode. So you can either 
uh, suck out as much data as you want uh, using BCP, or you can run this repair. So in emergency mode, if you run repair allow data loss, what it'll do is it'll, it'll force recovery. So it'll go through the transaction log and try and get as much information out of it as it can. Um, it'll skip any, any corrupt parts of the log. The reason for doing that is, you know, you're in this really bad situation anyway, so the, the, the most amount of data we can get out of the log, I think, is going to be the better for you. Yeah. So it, do, it does that, then it rebuilds the log, then it runs our full repair allowed data loss, so it gets everything structurally consistent. And, and then everything, hopefully, should be back up and running. I've never seen it fail. So, It'll always get you back up. What's left over after that is at least more than you would have had with a blank database. Absolutely. But not more than that. Yeah. So... Um, so this emergency mode data, emergency mode repair, I have this slide that, I'm, that I have in the middle of my presentations, and it, it goes through the different steps that emergency mode repair is going to go through. And then I say, you know, what happens if it doesn't work? Even though I've never seen it fail, what happens if it doesn't work? And then the next slide says, you know, everything disappears, and there's a little thing saying, update your resume. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if the DBA gets things so screwed up that, that they lose all the data and the business goes down, you know, they're going to be looking for a new job. Yeah. Yep. So, you know. It's in, the, it's in his, her best interest and the business's best interest that they have a disaster recovery plan and, and they test it and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, the only point you're using this is that every plan that you should have made didn't work. Right, <laughs> right. And oh, I'm, I'm horrified by the number of customers that don't have a disaster recovery plan or they have one and they've never tried it. Yeah, you know? which but means they all, don't really have one. Right, exactly. I mean, we always say... Um, you know, your disaster recovery plan should be written by your most senior experienced DBA, and it should be tested by your most junior inexperienced DBA. Right. The, the odds are that everything's going to go to, to hell in a handbasket when uh, it's the most junior DBA that's on in the middle of the night and doesn't really know everything about everything. Okay. Yeah. I've been exactly there, where the only guy left in the data center at 2 in the morning was 19. Was that you? No, it wasn't me. <laughs> I was the guy on the phone with him just trying to talk him down. Uh, right. Like you right. got to push the button, man. It's we know what we got to do here. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he yeah. was just scared to death. That's when oh, those yeah. things happen. And that's the thing, you know. People get a, people's databases go down and they panic, and they make all kinds of horrible decisions. But if they if they taken you know a couple of days with some of their other DBAs and and thought through things beforehand and worked out what the steps were going to be and practiced things, then you know they'd they'd have a lot less downtime, a lot less data loss, and you know. Peace of mind. It's definitely been my experience that most people do more damage in the attempt to make repairs than the original damage. Right. When they're panicked like that. Right. Yep. Yep. It's better to the number of times in a scenario like that when I've said stop everything, sit down for a minute. They're like, no, no, we have to get back up. We have to get back. Just wait. You know, you're not in a state where anything you do is going to make the situation better. You're only going to make it worse. But it can be hard for people to agree to that when, when they've got business executives breathing down their neck saying, you know, we want things back up running immediately. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Well, Paul, are you going to be doing any speaking uh, after Dev Connections anywhere? Are you going to be in uh, uh, TechEd this uh, year? Oh, absolutely. I'll definitely be at TechEd in, in Orlando. Um, we're actually, we're going to be, uh, Kimberly and I are both going to be in uh, SQL Server Open World in Copenhagen on, what is it, the 9th of March, I think. Great. So we're going to be there too. Um, nothing planned at the moment between April and May, though. But okay. definitely I'll be doing a, a bunch of stuff around TechEd and, and hopefully do maybe do an international TechEd as well. Oh, uh, Barcelona. I'll Barcelona. Barcelona. We'll be there. Malaysia? We'll be there. Going, yeah. to, going to Malaysia? Uh, I'm not sure. Last year, last year, one of the other guys on my team did uh, Malaysia, New Zealand, and, and Australia. So 
maybe this year I'll do that. Who knows? Very cool. Cool. All right, man. Well, it was, wow, it was a pleasure getting you on finally after all that Barcelona and what uh, you had some trip troubles or something, some travel <laughs> woes. Yeah, we were we were diving in Indonesia over Christmas, and I must have swallowed some water or something. I got the most horrible, horrible stomach upset, and it kept me out of work for for a couple of weeks. And then I was on so many antibiotics that screwed up my stomach, and so uh, I was ew. drinking these bacteria drink, uh, nasty, nasty bacteria drinks. You know, a hundred live culture yogurts in, in one little package. It tasted really nice. Kids, don't drink the water. Don't yeah. drink the water. Well, don't drink the seawater in Indonesia. There you go. Wow. And you, I mean, if you're hanging around with Ms. Tripp, you're yeah. going to be traveling a lot. She's actually doing a lot less traveling this year, which is which is good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to, we, we try and do traveling together to conferences and so on when we can now. Wow. And when's the big day? Which big day? You know, yeah, the yeah. big day. <laughs> uh, we don't know yet. All right. You keep us posted. Absolutely. Got a lot of fans out here. Okay, cool. All right. Thanks for thanks for being with us, and we're glad uh, glad to talk to you and come back soon. My pleasure. Look forward to it. All right. And we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-